Welcome to Unfiltered. Here's tonight's headline. Has everyone lost their mind? President Trump this week set fire to the emoluments clause by announcing his own resort would host the G7 summit. His chief of staff, Mick Mulvaney, set fire to his boss's innocence, admitting on camera to the very thing Trump is being investigated for and possibly impeached over. And Hillary Clinton set fire to her own reputation, claiming that one of the 2020 Dems who's polling at 1% is actually a Russian Manchurian candidate. We'll talk about it all tonight, but first, you know, Donald Trump has put the Republican Party through a lot. Most have gone willingly along with him. Kids in cages, a trade war, protecting Putin, honoring Kim Jong-un, breaking the law, the lies, the insults, the fake news, the rape allegations. Defending the president over the indefensible has become something of a cottage industry for Republican lawmakers, few of whom have ever dared to call him out. But over the course of his tenure, one issue has singularly and almost immediately prompted a vocal condemnation against the president. And it's the one issue that may put his presidency the most in danger. That issue? Syria. This week, 129 House Republicans voted against the president's withdrawal from northern Syria, which unleashed a Turkish invasion, a Kurdish slaughter, ISIS prison escapes, and a U.S.-brokered short-term ceasefire that Turkey ignored. In the Senate, Lindsey Graham, Marco Rubio, Mitt Romney, even Mitch McConnell have lashed out at the president for his immoral, inexplicable actions in Syria. McConnell even penned an op-ed decrying the move as a grave mistake. Take a listen to some of the other criticism from Republicans. Are we so weak and so inept diplomatically that Turkey forced the hand of the United States of America? Turkey? American honor has already been tarnished. We once abandoned a red line. Now we abandon an ally. Mr. President, we need answers. It reminds me of Somalia and South Vietnam. Mm. And it's, it's, it's disheartening. And I think, I think the impact isn't even being felt yet. We have done a lot of bad things in this, this move, okay? Not only have we empowered Turkey to treat the United States like a third world country, we have uh, brought Russia and Iran well, deeper into the Syrian situation. Is President Trump making America safer right now with these moves? Uh, no, I would rather these moves had not been made. And I think there's a lot of things going on right now that are not making America safer. Now, this is not the first time Republicans have broken ranks with the president over Syria. Last year, when he threatened to abandon the Kurds the first time, Republican lawmakers came out instantly and forcefully against the president. Lindsey Graham called him weak and dangerous at the time. He and Tom Cotton, Marco Rubio, Joni Ernst and others signed a letter to Trump warning him to reconsider. Remember, Defense Secretary Jim Mattis and Special Envoy Brett McGurk resigned over Trump's Syria policy. You have to take notice when one issue, one singular issue, has been able to unlock Trump's vice grip on Republican lawmakers, to unleash their outrage and locate their backbones. That issue, mind you, wasn't Russia. It has not been Ukraine. It is Syria. So here's the deal. Republicans, many of whom also criticized Obama's Syria policy, are aware that history's long gaze is unforgiving. And when it comes to serious foreign policy blunders, voters do blame presidents and parties for decades after. Think Vietnam. Think Iraq. 
Republicans also know that a Republican president responsible for literally, not indirectly, releasing thousands of terrorists into an already unstable region of the world is not something they can stand by. And they know that America will pay the price for the horrific toll this action will take on our allies and our reputation for years to come. And all this comes at the worst possible time for the president when he needs Republican support the most. He's not only up for re-election, but he's up for impeachment. And if you're a Republican lawmaker who is secretly on the fence, the Syria blunder might just give you the excuse to break ranks and say, I've had enough. And yet Trump is taunting them nearly every day with remarks like these. So you have a 22-mile strip that for many, many years, Turkey, in all fairness, they've had a legitimate problem with it, and they had to have it cleaned out. That's the president of the United States defending Turkey's ethnic cleansing of the Kurdish people. And that is why I've heard from several Republican lawmakers who have said this is far worse than what he said to the president of Ukraine. I'm telling you now, do not be surprised if after all the scandals, all the investigations, all the supposed threats to his unbroken base of support, it's his withdrawal from Syria that might just undo his presidency. Joining me now to discuss is former Ohio governor, former presidential candidate and author of It's Up to Us, 10 Little Ways We Can Bring About Big Change, John Kasich. Um, governor, welcome. Why do you think it is that Syria has almost singularly united Republicans against the president in ways that really no other issue has. Because there's a group of them that move forward. It was easy. A bunch of them said, no, this is wrong, and they're frustrated about a lot of things, and so they had cover because they didn't go alone. Uh, but I don't believe that a foreign policy blunder <clears throat> is going to be the thing that's going to undo him. If you do not have them convinced about the conversations the quid pro quo that the chief of yeah. staff talked about the other day in regard to Ukraine. In other words, using American power, American foreign aid, and withholding it so that they can demand that another country in, get involved in a, in a mm -hmm. political investigation. That's what is at risk here. And maybe they, you know, they haven't looked at that carefully enough. Maybe there haven't been enough witnesses, enough hearings, enough transparency, but that's at the heart of this. So what do you see then as the logical conclusion of the Republican condemnation of the president over Syria? What what comes of that? Well, I mean, it allows them to get together and to buck him and, and, to, and to feel their oats and all that. Uh, but I don't I don't see that a foreign policy blunder is is, you know, that's the thing that's that's going to take him out. I mean, presidents make mistakes in terms of foreign policy, but it may embolden them, just like you said, right. it, it may to some degree embolden them to take the next step. Uh, but the next step is going to have to be clear to them. This is going to have to be made so crystal clear that they can't yeah. walk away from it. And understand well, they're all upset with what the chief of staff said the other day, yeah. and they should be. I mean, yeah. it, if there is a quid pro quo, which I now have concluded after agonizing over all of these things that have been happening, how do you, how do you allow a president of the United States to manipulate somebody on his political behalf by withholding vital military aid. It's just wrong. 
Well, and yeah, I mean, there's this confluence, right? It's 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 Syria, which is which is a real bridge too far for a lot of Republicans. I'm talking about. They actually think it's worse than than what he he, he did in Ukraine. But there's that. There's there's Ukraine I, and I potential quid pro quo. Uh, well, you you you'd yeah. have to you'd have to talk to some of them. But I mean, for a lot of Republicans, this this Syria mistake is a very very big deal. It feels like a betrayal, not just to our military, but our allies, not just the Kurds, but to Israel yeah. and, other, uh, and other actors. It's a big deal. But, but the confluence of Syria with potential quid pro quo, with the G7 Doral contract, um, it's all intersecting. Do you think all of this might just push you know, Republicans too far? I don't think that the Doral, I mean, I don't know enough about Doral and what the legality is, no, I think it actually gets down to Ukraine. They're not going to have an impeachment resolution that has to do with Syria. They can express right. the look. We look. Assad won. Russia won. Iran won. Turkey won. We yeah. lost, and Israel lost. Okay, we, that's clear. And but the that is lost. not going to be the grounds to, to to take him down. I just don't see it. It's got them aggravated, and right. maybe it can move them to, yeah. in a, in a direction where they are emboldened and feel more comfortable in opposing him. We just have to see. But to me, at the nub of it is the Ukraine investigation. Well, so this is sort of something you talk about in your new book. Um, in the chapter, "Be Prepared to Walk a Lonely Road," you talk about the courage <laughs> required to take a principled stand. And while I appreciate voices like Mitt Romney and others standing up to the president on Syria, I think they should be even more outraged at some of the serious mistakes he's making. What's your message to current Republican lawmakers? Not the retiring ones, but the ones who want to stick around. Well, even the ones that are retiring. I mean, I thought uh, this, uh, this uh, Congressman Rooney said some things the other day that was, it would, took a lot of courage. Uh, it's not easy to have to step against your, your party and, and say something about the president. But the whole point of the book is whenever you're engaged in change, whether it is locally and taking care of your school or complaining about the school board or something about mm -hmm. the city or any, whatever it is, whenever you step out and bring about change, there's, you're going to get you're going to get criticized. I mean, think about the Parkland students that changed gun laws in Florida. I mean, they have been viciously attacked, but they're okay. They know they've done right. Greta Thunberg, a young woman who's uh, created this global uh, this global feeling about uh, about uh, you know we should take care of our planet. I mean, think about some of the things they've said about her. When you step out, no matter what it is, when you disrupt the status quo. You're going to get criticism. But you know what? That's okay. In fact, it's good because you know you're making a difference as long as your motivation is to bring a healing and a positiveness and as long as you're doing something that is going to improve people's lives. And that's just comes with the territory. Governor Kasich's book is called It's Up to Us, 10 Little Ways We Can Bring About Big Change. Thanks for joining me, Governor. Thank you, Essie. Good luck to you. Thank you. Thanks. <laughs> he said he's open to impeachment and he's retiring. Congressman Francis Rooney joins Jake Tapper on State of the Union tomorrow at 9 a.m. and noon Eastern. Next, the impeachment inquiry is moving at a rapid pace, in part because Democrats are keeping it simple. But there's a downside, too. I'll talk to former head of the DNC about that. And a little later, Bernie Sanders is back on the trail and with a much sought after endorsement. Keep it simple, stupid. That's been the Democrats' strategy when it comes to impeachment. And so far, it seems to be working by focusing narrowly on Ukraine and the idea that the president pressured a foreign government to interfere in the 2020 election 
a charge the White House has admitted to and there is a transcript of. Democrats have controlled the narrative by keeping the depositions behind closed doors. They've prevented proceedings from becoming a media circus. Instead, Democrats have been content to let the White House go in front of the cameras, where Trump and his staffers keep admitting to the stuff they're doing in broad daylight. The latest instance may be the most damaging and mind-blowing yet. The demand for an investigation into the Democrats was part of the reason that he it was on to withhold funding to Ukraine. The, the look back to what happened in 2016 certainly was, was part of the thing that he was worried about in corruption with that nation. And that is absolutely appropriate. Holding the funding. Yeah. To be clear, what you just described is a quid pro quo. It is funding will not flow unless the investigation into the into the Democratic server uh, happened as well. We, we, do, we do that all the time with foreign policy. And I have news for everybody. Get over it. There's going to be political influence in foreign policy. Well, perhaps the seemingly simple terms of the scandal, how obvious and uncomplicated it is, is why public support for impeachment has surged. And the quick pace isn't letting up. Next week, seven more officials will testify. But does the strategy open Democrats up to some criticism? Joining me now is former DNC chair, former governor of Vermont, Howard Dean. Governor, critique for me, if you will, the impeachment strategy thus far. Are Democrats playing it right when it comes to how they're handling this inquiry? I think they are, and I think the proof is in the polls. You had three polls uh, last week, including Fox News, uh, which said that more than 50 percent or 50 percent or more of American voters believe that Donald Peake should be re- impeached and removed from office. Now, that is yeah. a shocking number. And so I, I think they are doing well by not over-exaggerating this and turning it into a circus. Well, and those closed-door hearings have, have kept the process streamlined. It has not been a circus because we're not all, they're not all performing, you know, as they do in, in public hearings. But it also opens the door for some criticism that this process isn't as transparent as it could be. Does that concern you? No, I'll tell you why. Adam Schiff is an experienced prosecutor. And these, these uh, hearings are a little like the grand juries. The grand juries are not uh, public. And yeah. they, it's a freewheeling. And this is these are essentially grand juries. They're calling these witnesses. I think one of the things that's really fascinating that's going on is that the witnesses now understand that they can be, go to jail for perjury if they lie in these hearings. And it's yeah. making them a lot more careful and I think somewhat more forthcoming. Mm. So on the other side of this, um, Joe Biden played it played it relatively straight this week at the debate. Here's what he said about his son's involvement in a Ukrainian energy company. Take a listen. Your son, Hunter, today gave an interview, admitted that he made a mistake and showed poor judgment by serving on that board in Ukraine. Did you make a mistake by letting him? You were the point person on Ukraine at at the time. If you you can answer. Look, my son's statement speaks for itself. I did my job. I never discussed a single thing with my son about anything having to do with Ukraine. No one has indicated I have. We've always kept everything separate. Even when my son was the attorney general of the state of Delaware, we never discussed anything. So there'd be no potential conflict. My son made a judgment. I'm proud of the judgment he made. I'm proud of what he had to say. Good answer, Governor. 
Uh, good enough. Uh, you know, I mean, it, it, it was bad judgment. I don't think anybody really believes that Joe Biden is a crook or did anything crooked. But it's better if your family is not on boards that have possibly have some influence. Yeah. Now, the truth is, the truth is about this, though, is the initial press reports were absolutely wrong. The supposed and, and the Trump people were lying. What a big surprise. The, the, the infractions that supposedly took place took place two years before Hunter Biden went on that board. So mm -hmm. there was no uh, bad, you know, there's nothing illegal about this, but it looks bad and they shouldn't yeah. have done it. Okay, so between Syria, Ukraine, several other scandals, uh, there's a lot the president should be worried about. But let's say Trump gets reelected, certainly possible, despite all of this. In your mind, who gets the blame for that? Well, I, I think we're not going to blame somebody for something that hasn't happened yet. Look, Trump could win, and he will win if the Democrats let him. And the way, the way to let Trump win is to make this all about Trump all the time. Trump, you know, they there's an old political saying, which is one of my favorites, which is if, if you get in a mud wrestling match with the pig, everybody gets dirty and the pig likes it. Well, right. Trump loves to talk about himself. We can't do that. We have to. And I think the Democrats have been pretty good, the presidential candidates. We've got not to talk not about Trump. Trump will remind everybody every day that he's a jerk. What we've got to do is talk about what we're going to do when we get there. And if we don't How talk do you, about yeah. that, we're not going to win. No, I think you're right. But just looking looking not just at the 2020 Democrats, and I think you're right, they've been they've been doing a good job of talking about about issues and sort of uniting. Um, but but also the impeachment running along at the same time. Do you think that could help him? I don't think it'll help Trump at all, because I think every time some revelation comes out, it makes Trump look like what he is, which is a crook. And I, people are sick of that. I, I also think people are sick of the soap opera. I mean, it's one thing if you want to turn on The Apprentice at night, but if you can't turn on the evening news without having a thoughtful discussion, that gets pretty discouraging. I think a lot of Americans are just sick and tired of all this crap. Mm -hmm. Well, um, they have like a, a, another year of it <laughs> before the next election where I don't think it's going to get it's not going to get any better. Uh, the stakes are high. Governor, thanks for your time tonight. We'll have to have you back. Thanks, I see. OK. Coming up, Elizabeth Warren loses the coveted AOC endorsement to Bernie Sanders. That's good for Sanders, but it may be great for Warren. And Hillary Clinton wades into the already muddy waters of the 2020 primary. that I had any hope in launching a long shot campaign for Congress is because Bernie Sanders proved that you can run a grassroots campaign and win in an America where we almost thought it was impossible. New York Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez officially threw her support behind Senator Bernie Sanders for president at a rally in Queens, New York, this afternoon. It was a highly coveted endorsement and was pursued not only by Sanders, but also Elizabeth Warren. In addition to AOC's endorsement, Congresswoman Ilhan Omar has already endorsed the Vermont senator, and fellow squad member Congresswoman Rashida Tlaib is also expected to support Sanders as well, possibly at an event in her home district later this month. For a campaign that has recently seen flagging numbers, Sanders could surely benefit from any boost these endorsements bring, but it also may put an even bigger GOP political target on the back of an already slipping candidate. 
With me now is a former advisor to John McCain, co-host of Showtime's The Circus, Mark McKinnon, along with former senior aide at Hillary for America and Democratic analyst Joel Payne. Uh, Joel, do you think that these squad endorsements will boost the Sanders campaign? I question whether any endorsement really yeah. carries the same weight that it used to. Look, this is helpful for Bernie Sanders in this moment, short term. He's had a rough month. This is certainly going to give his campaign a short term boost. But I think long term, and you teased this a bit earlier, mm. I actually think the dichotomy here between the type of campaign Sanders is running and Warren is running, this continues to push those things apart. Sanders is war running a mad-as-hell progressive campaign. Yep. Warren is running electable progressive campaign. Those are two different things. Right. She's running as the progressive that can bring over moderates and can bring over people. I mean, who are, she might. She, of, of, okay. the, of the two, but <laughs> yeah. of the two, she's running More that so type than of Bernie. campaign. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So I think that, that this, you know, kind of emphasizes that dichotomy between the two. Well, and Mark, you know, AOC and the squad, as you know, um, continually in draw, uh, draw intense fire from Republicans, um, Trump, sometimes even some Democrats, and sometimes it's deserved. Um, did Warren maybe dodge a bullet kind of escaping from all of that, you know, all that comes with the squad? Well, I think you could argue that for the general election campaign that it's okay, but I think it was a very timely shot in the arm for Bernie Sanders. Yeah, he needed this. I mean, he needed this. He, he had a very good debate performance last week. This was a critical time when everybody was basically writing him off and saying he's done. Yes. And he came back strong at the debate. He, these endorsements came at a, at a critical time. Yeah. And so I think it's been a really good week for Bernie Sanders, and he's got a ton of money. He's going to be around for a while. Um, he does have a ton of money. Do you think he, he runs third party if, you know... Someone else gets the nomination? I don't think he does. I don't think he does. Only a Russian bot would do that. Oh, only, only wow. Okay, we're going to get there. We're going to get there. Um, Joel, <laughs> translate this for me. What, um, what does Bernie have for the squad that Elizabeth Warren doesn't? I think what Bernie has is, look, he is the godfather of the movement that they are kind of continuing. Socialism? He is, uh, you can call it socialism. Some people no, will call does. it. No, he does. I'm very, sensing he does. Some, some people will call it very, very forward-looking progressivism that they are carrying out. They're, I mean, AOC is literally like the manifestation of the Bernie Sanders right. legacy right. in Congress right now. So it makes a lot of sense. But I think Bernie Sanders has that fearless progressive streak that I think that hmm. those members of the squad actually feel like are kind of the godfather spirit yeah. of what they're doing right now. Um, Mark, Bill Schur over at, at Politico, he wrote that the endorsement won't um, change 2020, but that it will change the Democratic Party. To Joel's point, he writes, here's what it signals. Even if Bernie won't be with us forever, his socialist movement will be. Your thoughts on that? Well, right? I mean, look what's happened with Bernie Sanders. He was the outsider extreme fringe candidate yeah. four years ago, and he's the mainstream candidate. I mean, as, as far as the ideas that are being debated and are the tip of the spear of where the Democratic par yeah. Party is now, all the issues that they're debating are Bernie Sanders issues that yeah. he brought to the table. Yeah. So he can say, I've won, mm -hmm. you know, no matter what happens. Um, I want to get your takes, both of you, also on the fight um, at the debate this week between Warren and Bernie on, on one side, Klobuchar and Buttigieg on the other. Um, I thought both Klobuchar and, and Buttigieg were very adept at drawing distinctions between what they see as impractical and even, you know, invasive kinds of uh, policies from, from the progressives. How do you think that went? I thought it was a really good night for particularly Buttigieg, but for Klobuchar as well. This yeah. is the first time where they really stepped forward. This is the first time that Buttigieg seemed like he was at a debate and set up a town hall, mm. and he seemed to have some bearings. The first time you looked at him and said, that guy could be a president. You know, mm -hmm. he, just, he had that kind of bearing and gravitas that you want to see. Yeah. And uh, Klobuchar as well. But they, they, they made the, the, the debate about 
uh, about the, the gaps in the in the Warren Sanders plan in terms of funding. Yes. And they really broke that open for the first time. As and it choice, needs to be. Not just funding, but also choice. That's, People yeah, funding really and choice. That. And, and Warren has not answered that question yet. No. And it's a problem. She continues to wobble on it. And there's a reason why. She's she, refusing to answer it. That price it. tag is so, you can, yeah. I mean, it's enormous. It's, it's more than the total taxes that we pay today in income taxes, yeah. like times three but or four. But it's so weird to me, and I, I do want your thoughts, Joel, but like, it's so weird because Bernie already bit that bullet for her. You know, she's not really going on out, out on a ledge to admit, yeah, middle tax, the middle class taxes are going to have to go. Who's happiest about Bernie Sanders still being in the race is Elizabeth Warren, and here's why: hmm. he is somewhat of a heat shield uh-huh. for a lot of her steps on a, a lot, lot of bonds. Feelings, yeah. right? <laughs> Bernie will go out and will take the oncoming flack that Elizabeth Warren doesn't want to, because again, she wants to be seen as that progressive that can pull together a winning coalition. And Bernie accuses Sanders her of being a capitalist, her. right? Right. So she's like, bring that on. Right. You know, that's right. right. But, but, you, she, but she needs Bernie Sanders in this race, she, I think, would not mind if Bernie Sanders stuck through past the early states. Well, at some point, I've been saying this for, I feel like, weeks. Um, at some point, it's, you know, 10 Little Indians, and then there was one. At some point, they're going to have to take point. each other on. They can't, you know, they can't share the nomination. Okay, Mark Joel, don't go anywhere. We're going to talk about why Hillary Clinton decided to elevate a candidate polling at 1%. That's next. In the Red Fall tonight, queen of the warmongers versus the favorite of the Russians. The stunning war of words between Congresswoman and presidential candidate Tulsi Gabbard and former presidential candidate Hillary Clinton began when Clinton was asked about the Trump 2020 campaign strategy during David Pluff's Campaign HQ podcast on Thursday. Take a listen. I'm not making any predictions, but I think they've got their eye on somebody who's currently in the Democratic (laughs) primary and are grooming her to be the third-party candidate. She's the favorite of the Russians. They have a bunch of sites and bots and other ways of supporting her Mm -hmm. so far. And that's assuming Jill Stein will give it up, which she might not, because she's also a Russian uh, asset. Yeah, she's a Russian asset. I mean, totally. Okay, Gabbard responded with a series of tweets Friday, slamming the former Secretary of State, calling her the queen of warmongers, embodiment of corruption, and personification of the rot that has sickened the Democratic Party for so long. Now, Clinton didn't name Gabbard in the interview, but when asked by CNN if she was in fact referring to the Hawaii Congresswoman, Clinton spokesman Nick Merrill said, if the nesting doll fits. Later, he clarified via tweet, Clinton had been referring to Republicans, not Russians, in her grooming comment. Gabbard also reiterated she would not run as a third-party candidate last night. As much as Hillary Clinton would love for me to run as an independent or a third-party candidate, I am not entertaining that. I will not do that. Okay, back with me, former advisor John McCain, co-host of Showtime's The Circus, Mark McKinnon, and former senior aide at Hillary for America and Democratic analyst Joel Payne. Mark, um, serious question. It's a little scholarly and sort of academic, so go with me on it. Holy hell balls. What just happened? <laughs> Somebody's still not over 2016. Right? As Mick Mulvaney said, get over it. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, uh, it's, un- it's uh, unfortunate. I mean, it, th- there's no way that you can't interpret that in some way as questioning Tulsi Gabbard's patriotism. This is a combat veteran who served in Iraq, and to associate her with Russians and being a, being an asset of a foreign government is really unfair. It's disrespectful, and it's and it's it's undignified for a mm. former first lady and senator from New York. Yeah, she said she said she was a, a 
a favorite of the Russians, um, Joel Stein, an asset, an actual asset, like an actual spy. Okay, um, Joel, I think, I think, look, it's a fact that Russian bots are propping up Gabbard um, and and her candidacy. But should Hillary Clinton have to provide some evidence of her claims that she's a favorite of the Russians, that she's being groomed by Republicans? So I, I get it. And, and this was probably not how I would how I would put the talking points together. I hear um, you. That, that, that said, okay. I think the more instructive part of what the former secretary was saying was a second part about okay. Jill Stein, which is a real legitimate concern. Like Jill Stein and her campaign were leveraged in 2016 to hurt Hillary Clinton and to help Donald Trump vis-a-vis Republicans. Yeah. I mean, uh, vis-a-vis Russians. So, I, you know, I, I, I think that that was probably the former secretary in a very relaxed environment on a podcast mm-hmm. where maybe she kind of um, lost her bearings a bit in terms of what she was actually saying. She actually didn't say Tulsi Gabbard's name, mm-hmm. which you pointed out. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think we all are maybe a little bit too But to say that Jill Stein was a Russian asset means she was complicit in it. Yep. Not that she was leveraged, that she was complicit. I think, I think we are yes. all in this Trump era a little bit more frivolous with our language, and I think that a lesson here well, is shallow. that Maybe we, people could are, but pull, former we could all pull, we could all pull back on the language I host a podcast. A I know that it's plugged in, that people can hear it when, <laughs> when we're doing it. Um, Mark, my other issue here is that I feel like Hillary just elevated Tulsi Gabbard. Oh, yeah. Who's no, pulling no. at 1%. She's, she's desperate. Made her sound like she's a real She's desperate threat. for press, and she just got a ton of it. She did. Thanks to... Uh, uh, First lady, I don't think that was her intention. Other, than, that was other, than, other than a couple squeamish questions for people like me and about a quarter million dollars in fundraising, I don't think this is a big deal uh, for, for anybody. Really. Well, let's talk when Tulsi Gabbard decides to run a third party campaign. It's, it's, it's possible. Um, I also wonder, doesn't Hillary sound a little like Trump here? It's very Trumpy. Well, that's, the, that's the other thing I want to say is, yeah. I, you know, why not leave the conspiracy theories to Trump land? Yeah. Yeah. You know, I mean, <laughs> just it, it, it just suggests that. Uh, that you're taking your eye off the ball strategically. Well, and for her reputation and her legacy, yes, yes. Uh, this uh, is well, not good. Okay, so Hillary Clinton's reputation and legacy is, is cemented. Um, we all have bad moments in public. Uh, public officials say a lot of things. Hillary Clinton probably would like to have some of that back. But again, don't lose sight of the part of this that is factual, which is that Jill Stein and her campaign were leveraged. And I think if she started with the second part, as opposed to focusing on the first part, I think we'd be having a different conversation about what she was trying to elicit there and what she no, was I saying. No, I think we'd be having this conversation. I think for a former sure. presidential candidate, who's, I don't think her legacy is cemented at all. She lost twice. She lost the first time to a Democrat. She's very divisive. She, she makes a lot, she made a lot of mistakes in the, in the campaign. She lost by negative 3.5 million votes to Donald I Trump. Under, I no, agree. I understand, but I don't think her <laughs> legacy is cemented and she's, she's um, you know, uh, c- completely immune from from scrutiny or from, from making mistakes that really do ding her reputation. I, I, I think your question is a good one, though, about her kind of mimicking Trump's tactics. And I think what we're seeing here is the difficulty in people not allowing Trump to corrupt all. And I think the president who leads from the top, Mm. he creates this environment where we can all be a little bit more frivolous with our language. And that's a challenge. Do you think, I mean, you know, I don't think Tulsi Gabbard's gonna, gonna, um, you know, be the front runner, be the nominee, who knows. But for real front runners like Warren, Biden, Bernie, do you think they're worried that Hillary is going to maybe not be helpful over the course of the election? Well, I, I don't think she was helpful in the last week. I mean, yeah. this, this is a good example of not yeah. being helpful. Right. Um, you know, she, she, her, her contribution to this election is to not do it like Hillary did it. 
Yes. Right. So that's her her contribution is that everybody realize don't go down to Arizona and try and run up the score. Realize where those I go to Wisconsin. Where you pull the inside I disagree straight. a bit. Okay. Hillary Clinton won 66 million votes. She understands how to win a lot of people's affections in, 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 in an election. She we'll didn't. See, she didn't we'll win. We'll also, we talked about this in the break. We should grade these presidential losers on a different curve, I think. But I think they, we should, they have we should suffered a psychological that. trauma, yes. I agree. Okay, Mark McKinnon, Joel Payne, thanks so much, both of you. Uh, we got a two for out of you. I like it. Okay, female candidates often get more than their fair share of scrutiny. So when we come back, I'm going to flip the script. Women made up 53% of all voters in the country in 2018. In the last presidential election, that number was 55%. They will be pivotal in deciding 2020. For some Democrats, that might be a problem, though. I went on the floor and got you votes. I got votes for that bill. I convinced people to vote for it. So let's get those things straight, too. Senator Warren, do you want to respond? I am deeply grateful to President Obama, who fought so hard to make sure that agency was passed into law. And I am deeply grateful to every single person who fought for it and who helped pass it into law. But understand... You did a hell of a job in your job. Thank you. (laughs) That was one of just a few debate moments that raised some eyebrows, mostly lady eyebrows. We're getting to know the men of the 2020 Democratic primary better. And in some cases, no thank you. As Washington Post columnist Monica has pointed out in a piece titled The Men Asking for Our Vote and the Dudes They Remind Us Of, Pete Buttigieg is, quote, a sort of megalomaniacal eagle scout. Tom Steyer is that dude who thinks he knows more than you based on once reading the book you wrote. Cory Booker is the only man in your feminist studies course. Okay, so how are women voters hearing the men asking for their vote? With me now is contributor at the Daily Beast and the host of Crooked Media's Hysteria podcast, Aaron Ryan. Good to see you, my friend. Good to see you, too, Jesse. I know, I miss you. Um, You're so far away over there. Okay, (laughs) so what did you make of that Biden-Warren moment? Where basically he told her, you didn't build that, I did. Yeah, I think Joe Biden is, you know, we're talking about the guys that the candidates remind us of. Joe Biden is a guy who is of a generation when at one time it was okay to talk to women like that. And he hasn't quite picked up on the fact that that's not okay anymore. And watching that moment to me crystallized exactly why I think he's going to have problems with younger voters, especially, especially Mm. women who are who don't like it when men talk to them like that. We don't like it when men don't like being screamed at. No. Um, Okay. so Mayor Pete Buttigieg also went after Warren for her lack of specificity in her Medicare for all plan. And he's not the first to do that. I think he has a point. But what was your take? I thought Mayor Pete, up until the debate, was somebody that I actually liked a lot and had never really been rubbed the wrong way by. And I thought that moment was sort of like, I guess, take the rod from your own eye before critiquing the other person's eye. I mean, he's he's known well for not having as much specificity as Warren's library of plans that she has. Yeah. And while you're right, I think that he was right to critique her non-specificity in the medical, Medicare for all thing. Um, he really needs to kind of get his house in order before he comes at her for that. Interesting. OK, so you think Cory Booker, though, is very good at navigating this stuff? 
I do. I think sometimes he lays it on a little bit thick. You know, I think (laughs) women are pretty attuned to men that are really, really trying hard. But at the same time, I don't really think that we should punish men for trying because he is he's at least trying. He's putting himself out there a little much sometimes. But I appreciate the effort. Yeah, I don't know if I if I want my husband to read me like a 200 word um, <laughs> bedtime story at night. But okay, isn't no, isn't no. it weird, Aaron, that you and I have to talk about which male candidates know how to be around women? Isn't that weird? <laughs> I think it's mega weird, first of all, because we are like half the population. And I kind of wonder how many of you actually hang out with women, you know, (laughs) women that you're not married to or that your wife didn't give birth to. Like how many of you talk to women, pay attention to the way that we like to be spoken to? How many of you really have a grasp on us as people? That, and that's a that's something that yeah, is really surprising people. to see. People. It's like, you know, we're, yeah. we're just people. Talk to us just like people. people. All right, Aaron. Great to see you. Thanks for coming on. Good seeing you, too. Thank you. All right. More to come. Stick around. A NASA first. Two American astronauts left the International Space Station yesterday to replace a power controller. Sound mundane? Well, the two astronauts, Christina Koch and Jessica Meyer, became forever enshrined in what was the first ever all-female spacewalk. Took seven hours and 17 minutes and included a call with President Trump. For a space geek like me, it's an awesome thing. It's been a long journey for women in space. At the start of the space program, NASA actually thought women would be better astronaut candidates than men. They were lighter, smaller, required less oxygen. But when spaceflight turned into a space race with Russia, it was thought men better handle the task. As you can imagine, there were some other harebrained impediments for women. Yes, some scientists wondered how women would handle menstruating in space. Fears that women would be a distraction to men in confined tight spaces. Thoughts that women shouldn't abandon their children or their housework for the rigors of spaceflight. But eventually, we got our chance. Women were finally admitted into the astronaut program in 1978. An American woman didn't fly in space until 1983. That was Sally Ride. Now, Dr. Meyer said of her all-female spacewalk, this is really just us doing our jobs. True, but here's the best part. According to NASA, having the two women embark together for the first time wasn't purposely planned that way. NASA says that it was just bound to happen eventually because of the increasing number of female astronauts. That it was inevitable to have two women astronauts walking in space together because so many women are increasingly entering space sciences, well, small step for man, but one giant leap for womankind. All right, that's it for me. But you'll want to stay right where you are because Van Jones is coming up next. He'll talk to Alabama Democrat Senator Doug Jones about the pressure pressure he's facing from both sides of the impeachment debate. Van Jones Show is next on CNN. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.